Thank you, Professor Rao and the Student Union for inviting me. I'm indeed very honored that my book is going to be discussed. I've worked very hard at it and I worked not to try and topple or defeat or offend any opponent, but to wake up our own Sanskrit scholars who now have to take this up and do a better job than I can and take it further than I can. So uh, the book is framed as a discussion between insiders and outsiders of our tradition. It, it uh, raises some issues about the outsiders, their, their uh, interpretations, and gives the insider response. But the purpose of this book is really to uh, wake up the insiders from their silos and isolation and give responses to the outsiders. So my part of the contribution is to exp uh, put the light on some red flags concerning the outsiders' interpretations and then request more insiders to join in this ex exercise. So each chapter of the book is an is a analysis, a Purva Paksh and Uttar Paksh of what is going on in the world of Indology. A lot of uh, people have asked me why does it matter to us. It matters to us because we are so colonized that without, whether we know it consciously or not, much of what we think about ourselves, our own heritage, our own Sanskrit and our own Sanskriti is actually, it's been interpreted elsewhere and taught to us. So we've downloaded these apps into our brain and that's how we are running. For instance, the whole Aryan invasion theory never existed till 1800. There was no concept of a Dravidian people and Aryan people until the 1800s, early mid 1800s. And then, uh, you know, one person, uh, Max, Miller, uh, Max Miller starts the Aryan invasion theory and Robert Caldwell, the Dravidian theory. And now 150 years ago, 150 years later, this is part of our life. So it does matter. You can say something similar about the caste system. Lord Risley's role in defining what is today's version of the caste system. Before that, we had something called Jati and Varna, which was not exactly the same thing. So we know these things do matter. And I could go on with uh, a number of examples of things taken for granted, our history, our chronology, many, many things are not uh, as per our tradition, but as reinterpreted by the Western uh, Orientalists and Indologists. So it does matter. And in this book, as, as my uh, prototype, I've picked the individual and individuals who I consider to be the most powerful, most influential Indologists today, having the maximum influ influence in India. So do not think that I'm, crit I'm criticizing people that, you know, influence Westerners. Most Americans have never heard of these people. Most Americans haven't. But uh, most of the American academic scholars never heard of these people. Their entire reputation, power, clout is because people in India bend over backwards, go running around adopting what they have written, giving them, giving them Padam Shri, Padam Bhushan, millions of dollars of grants, uh, appoint them here and there to as the experts. So they have become the experts on Indian civilization as per Indians, as per Indians. Uh, you won't find such similar status given to some American concerning Chinese civilization as per the Chinese themselves. Uh, you won't find Japanese uh, adopting some American and saying that is the final word on Japanese civilization 
or the Arabs saying that this particular fellow at Harvard knows the ultimate about Islamic studies or Arab studies. You won't find that. Indian civilization is the only among the major ones where the insiders are bending over backward and very grateful to and very obliged that some outsider is studying us and telling us what, what, we, what we didn't ourselves know. So this is the inferiority complex problem that we have. Hence, uh, deconstructing what they have done, uh, giving an answer to it becomes very important. And it's not, uh, it's not some guy sitting in America, diaspora, and he has a problem with some people there. It's nothing to do with that. It's me concerned that people in India just aren't able to give a response. This kind of work that I'm critiquing has been going on for at least three decades, and nobody has given a systematic response. So Sheldon Pollock, who is the main person I'm evaluating in this book, whose work, I consider him very learned, very intellectual, very smart, and uh, there's nothing personal about him. It's just that I question many of the basic assumptions he makes. I will come to that in a moment. And when I told him that what bothers me is that nobody has done a critical analysis of his work, he says, I've never stopped him. And he's right. He hasn't stopped anyone, but people just never bothered to do it. So um, that's, that's the background, that's the situation in which I, I arrived. Uh, the book has lots of material stuff in it, and I, I've given several talks, and I'll put up all the YouTubes if you... If you, are, if you are, write down your email ID, uh, I hope there's a sign-up sheet here uh, for email IDs. Uh, then I will put you in a list and send you links to various lectures I've given. I'm giving 23 lectures in India with some commonalities, but also each one is different. And that way uh, you'll be able to see what, what was mentioned in all of them. Uh, and that's how I'm covering the scope of this entire book, part, one part at a time. The, um, the point I want to, each time I pick up one point and emphasize, so this being a center for, also for computer science, computational linguistics, sciences, and so on, uh, I want to pick up a particular point that is, uh, that I've critiqued uh, about what the Western Indologists have written. And that point is, uh, according to them, Sanskrit why did Sanskrit become important? They quickly rule out any army, military invasion like Romans, you know, going around South Asia, Southeast Asia. That didn't happen. It was voluntarily accepted. But why was it voluntarily accepted? The theory is that it was the most powerful, most important language, most useful language for asserting the king's power. It was a power, it was the power of the king that had to be expressed. And this was done better in Sanskrit than any other language because of Kavya. Kavya is, according to them, primarily a political uh, genre. And this could best be done in Sanskrit. And therefore, it, kings found it useful to maintain their power and spread their power to adopt this and adopt the various literature and texts because it, it made the king look powerful. And hence, they sponsored the Brahmins to develop this kavya, spread this kavya, because it was a, it would make the king look powerful. So basically, the whole theory of the spread of Sanskrit into what they call the Sanskrit cosmopolis, which is a huge area, for over a thousand years, was a quest for power. It was power-hungry kings that patronized the spread of Sanskrit, and or anything to do with spirituality 
and those sort of things are totally excluded from the reason why Sanskrit became important. Now, why did, why was Sanskrit suitable for the spread of power? So here, here there is a there is a new word coined by by the, the by the uh, Indologists that I'm critiquing, and this word is literarization. That's called an extra ra. It's not literization. Literized, a literized language means literary. You are able to read and write. You can write English literary, and there are people who are literate. But this is not literizing. This is literarizing, an extra r, literarizing. So the language becomes literarized when it is infused with certain structures, certain construct that lend themselves for power. So to give you an example, suppose you take, suppose somebody says English is particularly suitable for medicine because it is infused with a lot of medical vocabulary, a lot of medical theories are already part of the language. And so when one medical scientist or doctor uses English, uh, it's very easy to communicate. But another language, another some obscure language does not have those structures that are medically important. And so it is not as suitable. That's the kind of analogy. Or if you're a software guy, then if you say that a certain language has a lot of, uh, lot of uh, macros in it, then it's suitable for development people, for software developers, because they can use that. Or if you are uh, somebody using a smartphone, you can say a particular platform has more apps. It's not just a platform that is important, but it has more apps. So I can do more things with it. So the Sanskrit, according to them, has, was infused with power structures. And these power structures were oppression of lower caste by upper caste, that was for power, and women by men, and outsiders like Muslims when they later came, it became very useful to use Sanskrit and Ramayana because it had structures for projecting hostility towards outsiders. So these kind of mechanisms were very useful because they became part of the Sanskrit language and therefore the Sanskrit uh, was a useful weapon for political expansion. So Sanskrit was literarized because it had certain constructs in the grammar that were asymmetric, that were oppressive, that were some, something dominating something else. Uh, it had uh, philosophy, Vedic philosophy, uh, which had some of these ideas built into it, which are political, which have to do with uh, elites, oppressing non-elites, and various uh, texts, Itihasas, you know, Ramayana, Mahabharata, and so on. And, and so the aesthetics of this language are so beautiful in such a lot of beauty, it's able to hide that it's really exerting power over you. So there's a certain aesthetic way of uh, the, the, the elite becoming powerful without other people thinking that this is happening. So they're sort of duped into it. And this quality of Sanskrit is what made it powerful. So this theory, uh, I critique on two grounds. Firstly, I say that Sanskrit also was infused with many other qualities. Um, it has the sacredness. It has, it has mathematical precision, which made it important for linguistics, which made it very important. It had mantra, 
which a lot of people considered important. It has so many different kinds of Shastras from Jyotish Shastra to all sorts of things that people considered important. And the structures of Sanskrit made it, um, and Sanskriti, all these sort of Sanskriti ideas and Sanskrit itself were so intertwined that there were multiple reasons for Sanskrit to spread. Maybe, maybe politics was one of several reasons, but it cannot be considered the one reason only or the dominant reason for Sanskrit spread. So I, that's the kind of counter-argument I give. I also, I also point out that now we have the English language elite in India. That's not the Sanskrit language elite in India. And this, of course, people don't like to hear, particularly in the social sciences. And therefore, I, what I've said is that now it is English language, Americanized, which has been infused with certain structures of minorityism, casteism, infused with ideas of breaking India projects, divisiveness, infused with self-hate. So the Indian, the, and the mimicry of the whiteness, the mimicry of the Americans. So today, if you were to take the argument given by Pollock about uh, Sanskrit and its power and how it helped perpetuate an elite, uh, one would take the exact same arguments and apply it to English language and say there is the English elite. They are the ones who go to literary festivals and get awards and they are the ones who are celebrated as very powerful people on mainstream English media. They are the ones who are the IAS people, IFS people. They are the ones who are writing NCRT books, government policies. So it's the English-speaking elite infused with power structures imported from the West. Various ideologies imported from the West, which has created the buzz, the uh, the vernacular, the, the, uh, which has created the language structure of uh, English. So it is not only English purely for ordering a cup of chai or ordinary mundane talk. It is English loaded with these assumptions, loaded with this kind of ideological vocabulary, loaded with all this kind of history, uh, uh, you know, and all these constructs. So when you are learning English and you study English honors, it's not just learning it as a language. You're being taught how to use these structures. You're being taught literary theory. You're being taught uh, the, the, a kind of ideological uh, lens, a drishti, to look at the world around you, to look at texts and look at the world around you. So uh, my critique is not that they are wrong. I'm saying that on the one, first of all, I'm saying that this business of literarization of Sanskrit was not only for, uh, should not be appreciated only for its political applications but many other kinds of things for which Sanskrit was very good. And second point I think is what upsets people more because I tell them that the exact same theory can be applied in the reverse direction. What you have are, uh, you know, the Sheldon Pollocks of the world are, are spreading the power of a certain kind of elite. Uh, they are, they are uh, writing prashastis for their sponsors and the sponsors are doling out millions of dollars. So there's a certain kind of uh, uh, image and aura uh, and aesthetics of this English-speaking cosmopolis, you might say um, American English cosmopolis is spreading into India and we are all sort of elite part, part of it. I'm part of it too and I, I have no problem uh, uh, acknowledging that. So this is, this is one of the uh, important uh, points that I bring out in this book. I also bring out issues of chronology which I hope the other speakers will raise. Uh, address uh, Professor uh, Rao and um, you know Conrad Elst. I raise questions about whether uh, the, whether the whether the claim is correct 
the other part, party is making that the Buddhist tradition was anti-Vedic. Uh, I, I question that. And whether the claim is valid that it is Buddhists who uh, transform Sanskrit into a language that could be used for pragmatic purposes, uh, uh, you know, and, and introduce writing and uh, uh, allowed Indians to become progress-oriented because be before that, allegedly, Indians did not have progress. Uh, and and uh, I also question the decoupling of Kavya from Vedas, that is uh, Devpriya's specialty. So I hope Devpriya will say something on that. Because a very, very strong claim is being made that Kavya is sort of a secular thing for political goals. That's a very strong statement, but it's being made over and over again. And, and uh, the whole enterprise of Sanskrit and Sanskriti and Sanskrit texts has, has survived and thrived because it is very good for social oppression. So it's kind of, uh, using my terms, it's like a weapon of mass destruction. Sanskrit and Sanskriti are a weapon of WMD, intellectual WMD. So you, it's easy for, to sell this to another king in Cambodia or Thailand or wherever because you could say this is a WMD. If you buy this and adopt it in your kingdom, you can become very powerful. So it's all about power, hunger, oppression of other people that, uh, that has made this successful. The lens being used by Western Indology, uh, they are calling it political philology. It's not just philology. Philology is okay. Everybody does philology, which is a study of texts. But political philology, they, they say, is the looking for political motives in the text. What is the political motive in the Ramayana? What is the political motive in the, uh, in, the in a Veda uh, mantra? Who is being oppressed by whom? What is the political motive of uh, Mahabharata? So it's all uh, postmodernism projected back to uh, interpret, uh, you know, political oppression and exploitation and so on. Uh, it's part of this breaking up of everybody's grand narrative. It's, it's part of that. It's part of that project. So um, the uh, political philology is the device being used for uh, analysis and understanding, reinterpreting. And then there is another device that goes with it called liberation philology, which is then to make interventions to cure the problems, in human rights interventions to cure the problems of an abusive society. So that's what Sanskrit studies, Sanskriti have turned into. Now, when they say revival, our people are so happy because they say, but so-and-so was saying we revive it. So then I quote them, okay, but their idea of revival, they've said, is to look for such oppression. It's a revival by scholars to study it in a new way than it was studied in the past. Revive it so you can look for such oppressive elements in it and then you can remove those elements in order to free, liberate the Indian people from their own baggage, from their own Sanskriti. So this is, it's almost like saying uh, Sanskrit has to be re decoupled and, and deprogrammed and uh, kind of relieved of Sanskriti. You have to take the civilizational, the cultural, uh, the philosophical aspects out of it, uh, kind of secularize it, and then it's safe for consumption. So that's, that's in a nutshell uh, what I'm writing about. I, I, I would love to now hear other comments and then we'll throw it open for question answers. Thank you very much.